Welcome back to Papers Federalist. I'm Justin. And I'm Kerry. All right, Kerry, we are back this time with Federalist number 23, uh, the necess- necessity of a government as energetic as the one proposed to the preservation of the Union. From the New York Packet, Tuesday, December 18, 1787, Alexander Hamilton addressing it to the people of the state of New York. That's the paper we'll be talking about this time on, the, on the Paperless Fellows here. Um, and uh, welcome everybody back. Uh, and uh, to those who are joining us uh, midstream along the way, uh, you know, what we do on the Paperless Fellows is we try to take each uh, Fellows paper, uh, kind of break through the um, language of the time and the way it was written and get to the core issue or issues that are addressed in each paper and, and, and just sort of discuss and see. Well, a variety of things. So, Kerry has his role as summarizer in chief here. Uh, Kerry, do you want to give a quick uh, little summation of Federalist Number Twenty Three for us? Certainly. And um, with Paper Twenty Three, we're actually embarking on sort of a new series of papers with a common theme. The next few papers that we're going to be discussing all seem to be variations of the common idea of what sort of military power should be vested in the federal government and uh, what degree of power and authority needs to be given to the federal government to exercise that power and how it should be exercised in practice. And so here in paper 23, Hamblin opens up the issue. Um, he basically says, okay, we are going to start talking about what sort of protection the government, the federal government should provide to its member states how much power we need to give to the federal government in order to basically protect and defend the states, and then who and how uh, the federal government should exercise this power. And having posed those three questions, he is not going to answer the last one. He's only going to answer the first two. In a future (laughs) paper, we'll talk about how that power is going to be exercised, but this paper focuses more on the amount of power needed and how much should be given and how much should be reserved to the states. And so with that, he says, okay, one of the main purposes of a federal government is to defend the member states from external threats as well as internal revolts. As an aside, he also talks about, okay, also the federal government is supposed to regulate commerce uh, with other countries in between the states and handle diplomatic uh, interactions between states and foreign countries. But again, he doesn't care about this last two in this paper. He only cares about the defense. And with that, once he lays out what he's going to be talking about, he focuses wholeheartedly on, okay, we're going to talk about national defense now. The important things we have to do for that are we have to have make armies, make fleets, have rules about how the armies and fleets are going to operate, support those armies and fleets, and just generally handle any national security threat, I think is the way we'd phrase it today, any foreign military threat, the federal government is going to handle it. Um, He says, so the question we have to ask is, what degree of power should we give the federal government on the military front as compared to before the, uh, during the Revolutionary War, a lot of the military defense was sort of vested by default in state militias and, you know, volunteer organizations. And Hamlin's answer is unequivocal. He's like, we need to give them all the power. Because, you know, you don't know on any given day, any given year, 
what the threat is going to end up being. It could be anything. It could be something, some little minor regional uprising, or it could be the empire of Great Britain is invading all over the eastern seaboard. Mm -hmm. And so because anything can happen, we have to give all of the power to the federal government. Hold back none of it to the states. It's completely um, a federal government issue. The states can't be trusted with it. And he said, no, look, you could ask the question of whether or not this should be, there should even be a federal government and if it should be given the, the chore of defending the country or not. He says, that could be asked, but we've already answered it. He says, that ship's basically sailed. We've already decided um, when we formed the Articles of Confederation that it's a federal government job. This is, you know, the Constitution doesn't change that. It's too late to have that debate. So sorry, I'd love to have it, but that question's already been asked and answered. So that being the case, what do we need to do about where we are now? And he says, look, in theory, the Articles of Confederation already vested all the power with the national government to raise armies and conduct warfare. You know, they could ask for whatever money and resources and men that they thought was necessary, and the states would have to give them to them. In theory, they already had unlimited power almost for there. It's just that in practice, it didn't work because these states just didn't provide and the articles didn't give them the power to to punish them for not doing that so all we're doing here really in the constitution is making what already we were spoke making what we already had in power in theory to do on the articles work better in practice he says look you, you know we have to vest this power in the national authority because the national authority is the only the only level of government where it's going to defend our nation as a whole. Because as, as was discussed in prior papers, whenever there's a threat that's primarily to just one reason, say, say Great Britain invaded Massachusetts. Well, you know, if, every, if each state was to fight, had the power and authority primarily just for its own defense, Massachusetts would probably use a great deal of its resources to defend itself but maybe Georgia wouldn't feel as threatened and send almost nothing because they're going to think to themselves, how much does this affect me? Whereas the nation is going to think about if any part of the nation is invaded, it threatens the, the greater whole. Um, and so this power has to be vested at the national level. And over and over again, he just keeps coming back to the idea that, uh, you know, you have to give unlimited power to the federal government in the military sphere to deal with any and all threats that arise. You can't hamstring it. You can't limit it. You can't tie it up with um, the any limitations that would undermine its ability to, to fight a war. Um, and so that's really the high-level view. There's yeah. a little bit more there that we can dig into. Yeah. But the overwhelming theme is all power to the national government. Okay. So that's definitely one of the themes that I think um, we want to talk about. And what I want to say first is that, uh, you know, context is important. And, and so that was the thing that um, drove my thinking of this paper from two angles. One... In the, in, with respect to the paper itself, context is important. And he mentions, uh, look, you know, we've the, the Articles of Confederation, you know, at, at the time that they were considering replacing with the Constitution, essentially tried to do this, but just didn't do it effectively, right? You have, it gave the 
the power to um, uh, demand quotas and militias and monies from the states, that power rested in the um, federal government. But it, in doing that and in making the laws that the federal government passed apply to the states and not to the individual people and the citizens of the country, um, it hamstrung the federal government's ability to effectually do the job. And he talks about this theory of energy throughout the paper. Like the federal government has got – you got to give – and, and he kind of paints this, uses a broad brushstroke. Like if you're going to ask someone or something to do the job, a particular job, you have got to allow them the resources necessary in order to be able to do the job. Otherwise, mm-hmm. you know, why bother asking them to do the job in the first place? And so that's that was his, you know, kind of thesis point. Um, and I think anybody, and he kind of makes this broad sort of generalization that would seemingly – of course, everyone would hear that and say, well, well, yeah, I mean, if you're not going to give somebody the tools to do the job, then you're setting them up for failure, and what are you really doing? And that's and that's kind of how he paints what was happening with the Articles of Confederation at the time, is like, you know, essentially, Ameri- the federal government under the Articles of Confederation was a- tasked with doing the job of defending the interests and the security of the nation, but they weren't given the resources to be able to do it, mm-hmm. and, you know, problems resulted, and, you know, we got to fix this moving forward and, and, and put all power in the federal government level with respect to the defense of the nation. Um, and also, the uh, he, he makes reference to the uh, putting down of um, internal, I- internal struggles, right? Mm-hmm. Which, again, you know, highlights for me the, the difference here. Um, you know, I keep coming back to this, the idea of the modern federalist society, federalist person who, mm-hmm. you know, does not want to have a strong federal government, very much power to the states. And here in the federalist papers, yeah. Hamilton is arguing for a strong federal government that has unlimited federal power militarily and that can put down insurrections or, you know, in, internal disputes. The federalist does seem to be very much in the eye of the order. I mean, yes. it's funny how that... That, um, the definition of that term was struggled over even in Hamilton's day because the anti-federalists thought they should be the ones who were allowed to use it because of that very point of, well, federalism is actually about giving a lot of power to the lower levels as opposed to the unified whole. So, um, but I, I, I just want to say it for off the top, but we get into the discussion. This paper, for me, struck a chord and, and demonstrated the uh, reason why I wanted to do this podcast with you in the first place. Uh-huh. Now, I can't say that I, I sit here and recall any particular instance in which anybody has ever quoted to me Federalist Number 23 and took a, a snippet of it and made an argument from it. Um, but I feel like this paper is a potentially dangerous paper uh, for mm-hmm. us today because it is rife for the opportunity for taking a quote uh, and using it to campaign for something uh, that could change sort of who we are. Okay. So. Um, and, and multiple times throughout this paper, Hamilton is arguing for the federal government to have unchecked power militarily. Mm-hmm. Okay. And he uses the terms unlimited power. Uh, and the second, mm, let's see, one, two, three, third, fourth paragraph. These powers, in referring to, is there, let me start. The authorities essential to the common defense are these, to raise armies, to build and equip fleets, to prescribe the rules for the government of both, to direct operation, to provide for their support. So all that says, okay, that seems reasonable. The next line, these powers ought to exist without limitation. Taken out of context, the idea that someone would argue today and say, well, Hamilton 
Alexander Hamilton argued at the time the Constitution was formed for the federal government to have unchecked ability mm-hmm. to to um, raise armies and to defend the nation and 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 supply troops and to but go. I think he meant you know, it. Don't you think he meant it? Don't you think that that's what he meant? He- I think, but again, context is important. He's coming from a scenario in which the federal government was hamstrung mm-hmm. and had an inability to the point where it was dangerous to the security of the union. Okay, mm-hmm. and so he was arguing for an increase of federal power. I don't think if we sat Alexander Hamilton down today and said, we are now in a situation in which the federal government has a domestic spies program, where the federal government operated a rendition program, where mm-hmm. the federal government, um, you know, uh, has argued in courts to be able to change the status of citizen to that of enemy combatant, and as a result, the Bill of Rights are no longer applicable to a person. Mm-hmm. All right, like... Do you still think when you say unlimited uh, without limitation and you use that phrase, you know, do you you have this level of unlimited power for the in the guise of national security in mind when you wrote this paper? I I mean, I don't know what Hamilton would say, but I think I think he'd be cool with it. You think he'd be he'd be okay with just unlimited? I think Hamilton realized what he's saying. Remember, we've talked before about how this is Hamilton. He was constantly criticized by the anti-federalists for being the guy who was a monarchist in disguise. This is the Hamilton who wrote a letter to the king of Prussia wanting him to come over and be the king of America. Hamilton, to me, comes comes across as the guy who he think you know he talked the end justifies the means. To him, yeah. the end is to have a powerful United States of America and a powerful central government, and he's okay with anything you get to to, to need to do to get there. I think that I think we that's what we talked about in the past is how you, we see it most strongly. This comes out most strongly when he's doing the papers on his own and Mattis is not there to temper him. Temper, yeah. I think he'd be fine with all of those things. Well, maybe anything but that the, necessary to defend the national unity. He'd be I fine I with. think when he writes this though, without limitation, it is in the sense that the federal government has got to have the ability to fund and raise an army for the defense of the nation as a whole, and for more traditional. Powers because um, let me see here. I think it was later on. Oh, maybe it was in the other paper. Um, I, I feel like he puts a qualification on it at one point that would suggest that he wanted this to have. You know, he makes it the the, the our the American government under the Constitution is this has to happen so that we can be like most other nations would. That this is sort of a a common understanding of the ability of a federal power like the idea that the federal power wouldn't have the ability to 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 um raise an army and defend itself and defend the nation is ridiculous and you know doing what we're trying to do under the constitution he is saying that we're just trying to be like any other functional nation and, I and agree I, with you that in and, 24 and 25, he defends and qualifies it. Okay. I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but I think but, in this one, all right. he's pretty full-throated in his push for all power to the oh, federal level. Oh, he, he is. He's extremely full-throated. But my, I guess, I, I, to my larger point, my original point here is this has the ability to be taken as a snippet now, today, mm-hmm. and then have someone in argument t- say to mm-hmm. him, well, Alexander Hamilton argued for the unlimited federal ability to raise and have an army and, you know, and, and fund and defend the nation. Are you not in favor of national defense and, you know, mm-hmm. the founding fathers were and da-da-da-da-da? And unless you read the paper, this paper and, and the surrounding papers as a whole to understand you are not able, you know, you're going to be confronted with this, this, this quote that's taken out of context. And I, I, I think a 
could potentially be abused. Uh, and so that's part of the goal in doing the podcast, just for my own edification, mm-hmm. to walk through with you and to think about these things and to help not um, to help arm myself against any type of uh, you know debate where someone would come to me or I might be exposed to something and I wouldn't know I wouldn't know the context in which it was said in order to be able to know how to respond to it. When we get and, to twenty four you know, and twenty five, yes, I'd like you. We maybe we should talk more. I'm very yeah. much like you to point out to me where he seems to pull back and qualify because yeah. on, looking at this on his face, I think it says what it says. To me, the lesson I get out of it is not that Hamilton pulls back later and undermines the the mm-hmm. extreme position he has here in twenty three. To me, the larger lesson is that one particular founding father does not is not the end all of what our nation's about because the more we've read these papers the more i've come to realize that hamilton definitely is one of the most ardent advocates for a strong all-powerful federal government with relatively few checks and balances he is the strong central power founding father. Mm-hmm. And if you t- if if you only looked at Hamilton's vision for America, that's what America would be like. Mm-hmm. But it's some of the under other founding fathers temper that more. I mean, most explicitly Jefferson and some of the other fa- anti-federalists. You know, this paper here is one of the ones that they came out much most strongly against. I think in later papers Hamilton is starting to qualify and take a step back. Because he overplayed his hand here in 23 and gave some easy quotable snippets um, and arguments for the anti-federalists to strike back at. Um, I think this paper, honestly, is probably one of the, is of all the ones we've reviewed so far, mm-hmm. is the one that jumps out to me as like, whoa, this is some strong stuff and stuff that raises some concerns to me. I don't know about when you read it, mm-hmm. um, but you know, a bit of a pop culture reference. When I read this, of like all power needs to go to the federal government to protect us from our, any dangers we face, I could not help but hear the echoes of the, from Phantom Menace, the Emperor Palpatine speech when he was voted unlimited power to defend the federal republic. You know, the only way I can defend you is if you give me unlimited power, and of course I only take it to defend you, and I'm going to put it back down once we're safe. But of course. You live in the world where danger could pop up at any time, or in the galaxy danger could pop up at any time. You never are safe for all time. So there's a habit, there's a tendency, when you give unlimited power to anyone or any entity, that they tend to keep that power, and that power tends to you know, evolve uh, and grow over time, not shrink back you know, as a general tendency. And that goes a little bit more into 24 and 25. Yes, but you know what? I think I found even a qualification here in this paper in 23. Okay. Um, The paragraph that begins, uh, the experiment, however, however, uh, demonstrated that this expectation was ill-founded and illusionary. And there, you know, he's referencing the... um, Articles of Confederation. Articles of Confederation. At the end of the paragraph, he reads, it reads as such... Uh, the result from all of this is that the Union ought to be invested with full power to levy troops, to build and equip fleets, and to raise the revenues which will be required for the formation and the support of an army and a navy in the customary and ordinary modes practiced in other governments. And here again, to me, he's pulling back and he's saying, like, you know, guys, we're just trying to get to a level that would be the customary practice. And, and it's an army and a navy. 
to the level of other governments at the time. We need to be on par. We can't be so crippled and hamstrung by having to go to the states to ask for things that we are to the point of not being able to function. And I think that goes to his whole argument and his analogy of the use of energy. The government's got to have enough energy in order to function. You can't hamstring them and not allow them to have the tools to do their job. You got to be able to trust in them. He talks about trust, I think, at the end of this paper as well. And of course, you gotta trust the dictator you know, back in your own best interest. Um, he goes here towards the end. He goes, you know, for the absurdity must continually stare us in the face of confiding to a government the direction of the most essential national interest without daring to trust in it to it the authorities which are indispensable to their power and efficient management. Let us not attempt to reconcile contradictions, but firmly embrace the rational alternative. And it's to me, he's saying, like, we're either in on this or we're not. You know, we're either going to have a federal government that is equipped to be able to do the things that are necessary or we're not going to have it. And you're either in or you're out. And, and that was the kind of tone that I, that I took from, from this. And I and, think that's the danger of it you is know, the false choice. Yeah. Well, um, along, continuing on with the Sith argument, mm-hmm. you know, in the Star Wars lore, yeah. you know, Sith are always black and white, right? Yep. There's no shades of gray. You're with the Force or against us. You know, and, and, and you know, uh, the Jedi are very much more, you know, walk through and look at the gray minutia and try to find what is the right and the just thing to do. And and so, um, but pulling back to, to the paper, I think Hamilton is saying, you've got to give us a baseline level of power at the federal government to be able to function. And in order to do that, you're either in or you're out, and you've got to give us unlimited power when it comes to raising armies and navies for the national defense. I disagree with you. I don't think that in Tillet's environment where he says, where we say, well, Hamilton, you know, what if what if national security meant, you know, a domestic spy program? What if national security meant that the rights uh, could be uh, taken away from you if you were relabeled an enemy combatant, you know, and, and like, and so your rights are really privileges until the federal government says they're no longer your rights. Like, how far is that unlimited power when you talk about? It? Like, is there it's any unlimited? Like- <laughs> I understand what he writes in the paper, but I think you got to look. But that's exactly my point. I don't think Hamilton really meant that. At least I don't want to believe that Hamilton really meant that. I think he meant unlimited. They are two different statements. You don't want to believe it. Okay, that's what he said. I, but I see, and I think if you take just that phrase out of the context of the larger paper of a whole, or as the papers as collective, you very quickly can come to that conclusion. It's unlimited. We can't question the federal government's ability to have power to do it to defend us. And that's that. And, you know, and, you know, he criticizes this older setup under the Arnold's Confederation of, 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 you know, ha- what he views as hamstringing by the states, uh, you, you know, the federal government's ability to defend itself. But take a step back. Is there any wisdom that maybe we should be looking to with the original setup under the Articles of Confederation, even now, you know, like what were they trying to prevent when they forced the federal government to have to come to the states for permission to do certain things? What were they, you know, trying to prevent? Well, to me, the, the thing that jumps out is they're trying to prevent a new monarchy, okay, a new a new uh, empire, and and they're forcing, you know, in in sense, you know. They just threw off the British Empire. They don't want to subject themselves to a new king. Well, but also you the know, articles were a slapdash. They were, but on this point... and bailing wire solution to... They needed to get a national government on the cheap and quickly. And so yeah. the way to get everyone in quickly is to have a relatively weak structure. Because the most important thing is that you're in the middle of the war when this whole thing was slapped together. Mm-hmm. Okay, you're, we're not going to give that much power to the federal government. We only need to do as much as keeps us all on the same page for now. 
And so, you know, to some extent, I think we don't overthink the Articles of Confederation because, you know, the whole dang Articles of Confederation wasn't a very long document. It was just barely enough to keep the country together until we found something better. The Constitution wasn't a very long document either. It was substantially more fleshed out, and that's even than Articles, I think. Okay, but I guess my point is, you know, take a step back now. Is there any um, wisdom in limiting federal power to raise troops and armies and navies under the guise of national security or national defense, as Hamilton would say? And now and Hamilton, is, is your view is that he's saying it's unlimited. You know, uh, mm-hmm. I, I think he means unlimited in the sense that they need to be able to be funded and, you know, and they shouldn't have to go and ask permission from 50 states in order to, to be able to, like, you know, I sail across the ocean. I to write the Disney version of Hamilton. The Disney version of Hamilton. <laughs> he is more to your liking. You're trying to round off his soft edges. At the time, at his own, in his own contemporaneous time, people thought this was outrageous. I mean, this is, stuff like this is one of the reasons why anti-federalists were so strong and ardent in saying we need a Bill of Rights. Mm-hmm. You know, that's one of the reasons that they wrote the Third Amendment. Uh, I'm a well-known Third Amendment crusader. You know, uh, you can't quarter soldiers in people's houses without compensation and just let, you know, yeah. and uh, run roughshod of people's rights. You know, things like the Third Amendment and things like the, uh, you know, the limitation in war powers for the president, you know, things of that nature are a reaction to Hamilton. And, you know, the post-constitutional, you know, practice of some of the first presidents, you know, Washington, you know, giving uh, a strong, you know, his practice in his eight-year term of we don't want to get involved with foreign fights if we can at all avoid it. Um, Hamilton meant what he said. And the people who, the ones who struck back at him are more the ones who said, wait a second, there have to be some, because he says... Unlimited power by inference, because he, you know, his position is uh, danger out there is unlimited, and we have to give the federal government power to deal with any dangers can arise. Well, the danger is unlimited, so the government, federal government, has to have complete flexibility and power. And yes, he does say, in with reference to the Articles of Confederation, that the government shouldn't have to go go around begging. With his hand for handouts when it's time to fight a national war, but I don't think he intends that to be a step back from unlimited power. That's just one more reason justifying it. Um, when he in a future paper we're going to talk about later, he talks about how the legislature is going to rein him in, and I have thoughts on that. But in this paper here, unlimited power is unlimited. All right, unlimited power is unlimited. I don't know. I. I guess to me, I think he means it in the sense of, um, you know, being able to function. Like you have to have enough power in order to have the tools to do the job, and the job is to defend it, you know, the nation as a whole, um, as opposed to being hamstrung by, uh, like you were under the Articles of Confederation. I, 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 I don't know. I, I, I don't, and, and I guess it's because maybe. Have you ever read the Leviathan? Um, I get. Well, my my point is, I guess. Maybe what I'm doing is I'm looking forward in my own mind to the future papers where I feel like he is 
trying to, uh, this is maybe a teaser for future episodes, um, that he, he's saying, look, guys, you know, there, there are some checks in place. So, you know, so that's why I guess maybe, you know, and but that goes to my larger point that you can't, you've got to be able to read all these papers and understand what they mean to avoid being, having them misinterpreted or misrepresented so that someone can't just take a snippet from 23 and say, oh, he meant totally 100% unlimited power. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, read it 23 in the light of the full 23 and then also 24 and 25, you start to see, I don't think he really means, you know, 100% unlimited power because he makes reference to how the legislature, like he says, is going to rein in the executive. And that in and of itself means if there's limitations, it's not really unlimited. And I'm not trying to be semantic with you, but like... When it, we get to that know. paper, feel free to be semantic with me as much as possible. Okay. <laughs> However, this, you talk about full context. Yeah. And full context, this is one of those papers where I think that it's not even enough to just read the papers themselves. This is one of those papers where I feel like in pre-American English history comes in more strongly. And some okay. of the right, Enlightenment writings that all of the... Founding fathers would have taken for granted heavily influenced my view of this paper. Okay, how's that? Particularly, I don't know if we've talked about it before, but there's a book called The Leviathan by Thomas Hobbes. I think we have. I think I've mentioned it. Yeah. But and so I won't try. I won't, no. won't be too heavy-handed on this. Go ahead. But basically, Thomas Hobbes wrote this book right after the English Civil War, and um, the English Civil War basically, in brief, was one where there's just complete chaos in England. Because it was everybody fighting for who was going to rule England. Families were divided against each other. The whole country like, was totally wrapped up in this war. Everything was a struggle. Um, and no one was safe because one day you know, your town might be controlled by one side. Next day it's controlled by another. And every time there's a round of executions or imprisonments, that could be reversed the very next week. So you're living in chaos. And so you, you can't really plan for your future at all. When that ended... And there was a new king that took control. This book, The Leviathan, was written in reaction to that. Um, as much as the chaos that happened in America in the post after the Revolutionary War, this was a million times worse. So this book basically posits this idea that if there isn't somebody in charge of us, humans, life is, na- is chaos, basically. It's nasty, brutish, and short. Um, and let me read you this short quote from the book. You tell me how much it reminds you of what some of the early stuff that the Federalists have been saying. In such a condition, there can be no place for industry, because the fruit thereof is uncertain, and consequently no culture of the earth, no navigation nor use of commodities that may be imported by sea, no commodity buildings, no no instruments of moving or removing such things as require much force, no knowledge of the face of the earth, no account of time, no arts, no letters, no society, and which is worst of all, continual fear and danger of violent death, and the life of man is solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. That sounds like a more dramatic version to me of the chaos between when America won the Revolutionary War and when the Constitution was implemented. No one felt confident enough to engage in commerce between nations because no one respected credit. The states were all turned against each other and putting tariffs against each other, which hamstrung trade between the states. The, ex- the only thing that could make civilized life possible 
is this power that keeps order. There's this all-powerful entity that keeps order so everyone else can live their little lives knowing that you can't kill anybody, you're going to be subject to, to incarceration or death. You can't steal from somebody or face punishment. You've got to follow these rules. And the title comes from, in Hobbes' mind, man isn't good. There's no such thing as good because everyone wants different things. And good is subjective based on if you have the power to effectuate what you think is good and make everyone follow it. In the state of nature, where there's nobody to command or rule us, everybody's struggling to make their own version of good the law. Hobbes' argument is the only way we can live a civilized life where people will do things for long-term benefit and invest in, you know, I'm going to plant crops knowing that barbarians aren't going to come and take them all. You know, I can sell them. Is giving all unlimited power to a leviathan, as he calls it. This person who has so much unlimited power that everyone else is so terrified of the power and authority of the leviathan that they'll follow the rules. And that, that book was a very controversial book at the time because, you know, it, it pushed back against the developing ideas of British liberty, of here's the inviolable rights of man. He says, no, the only right is your right to decide whether or not you want to give power to the Leviathan. Once you do, it's all what the Leviathan wants to do. And tell me if some of this stuff doesn't echo into today's conversations about government in various places. Because a, a, because a successive covenant for government cannot override a prior one, subjects cannot lawfully change a form of, gov a form of government. The sovereign can't be put to death by their subjects. And the, <clears throat> once you agree to give all power to the sovereign, the Leviathan, the, the law, the, whatever the, the sovereign wants to do can't be illegal. That's a, Nix, a Nixonian element right there. Anyways... The, the Leviathan came out in 1651. Okay. All the Enlightenment thinkers would have been aware of it. All, yeah. all of the founding fathers would. This paper seems to echo to me very strongly this, this notion of the Leviathan of the only way we can keep ourselves safe is giving all power to the central government. Mm -hmm. And once we do that, we'll be fine. But the world out there is too dangerous. Um, that's why we need to give unlimited power to the federal government. And I think the reaction that Hamilton got to that was so strong partially because all the others knew what he was echoing here. He was echoing this unlimited power argument of Hobbes and the Leviathan. And that concerned them because where that takes you is back towards monarchy and kingship. And they thought yeah. if, the, if, the, if the president has all the military power and ultimately the military does whatever the president wants, then ultimately if push comes to shove, the president wants to do, you know, whatever the president wants to do is going to happen because he's going to have the power that comes out of the barrel of the gun. Yeah. So that's why I tend to take him at face value because he knew what he was saying. Okay. And so I don't think Hamilton doesn't know what he's saying. I think you and I disagree on, on what he is saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, where you think he is arguing for un truly unlimited power to the federal government, I think he's arguing in the military sphere. In the military sphere, um, uh, I think he is arguing for uh, 
a federal power that has the ability to do its job, which is to defend the nation. And that to the extent that they need power in order to be able to defend the nation, they should be able to have it. Because otherwise you're setting up the federal government for failure and you're, you're not really committed to the national effort. So to me, there's a shade of gray there between you and I on, on the interpretation of what Hamilton is saying. Um, but what is, well, the, yeah, what yeah, is the, you said for the government to do its job, but I think what gets you to that limit of power is, I, I think we both agree, yeah. Hamilton wants the government to be able to do its job, but then he follows up basically by saying, because he doesn't, he doesn't use the exact words unlimited power. He says, we need to be able to handle the job, essentially. Well, he says without limitation. Like, yeah, <laughs> but but the know. way he primarily gets there, logically speaking, is, it needs to be able to do its job, and that job is unlimited. There are no, that anything could happen, and so because anything could happen, you have the power. You need to do the power yeah. to do anything. I don't know. I still feel like he wants it to be, you know, up up on par with other governments of the time, like I, you know, which are monarchies. <laughs> you know, I said it, and I was thinking that I was wondering if you were going to pull me out, call me out on that. I like, definitely <laughs> am. I, I never miss. As, a, as a I was saying that, I was like, "Which are Like I, that thought crusted through my mind right as right before you said it, and I was like, "I shouldn't be saying this." And that's and you why, called me out on it. <laughs> that's why the antitrust always yeah. are so easily triggered by Alexander Hamilton. Yeah, is because they think of him as a closet monarchist. He wants America to be similar to the other powerful governments at the time, mm-hmm. specifically some of the great powers of the earth, Spain, France, England, which are monarchies. Yeah. Whereas the anti-federalist movement is much more along the lines of only having as much government as is necessary to you know, achieve basic ends of yeah. commerce and whatnot. Well, to that, to that end, he also, you know, to further... And I was going to say, you know, he's referred to this country, America, as an empire in other papers. And he did it again here at the very end. Uh, let's see where to start. So this, at all events, must be evident that the very difficulty itself drawn to, from the extent of the country is the strongest argument in favor of an energetic government. For any other can certainly never preserve the union of so large an empire. And he is once again referring to America as an empire. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that also cuts to what you were saying about... Uh, Hamilton being a closet monarchist and viewing and wanting America to be an empire uh, on the likes and, and as far as power and influence of other prior empires. So I guess with that in mind, uh, we can wrap it up unless you have any other points you want to make on this paper and we'll move into uh, Federalist number 24 on the next uh, next episode. Well, I just very briefly, I, Don't just, shoot. I didn't yeah. want to say, you know, I've spent a lot of time hitting on, you know, discussing the unlimited PowerPoint, but mm-hmm. as so, some of his supporting points aren't aren't bad, you know they they are strong points. You I mean there's a reason that the Constitution, you know, had a much more vigorous and expansive ability of the federal government to fund and maintain armies and navies, and um, and that is to say his points about the states not really caring as much about the whole it's yeah. valid. Yeah. You know, the states, the reason it didn't work is because the Articles of Confederation sort of assumed that the different states were going to conform to the better angels of our nature. And of course, would all understand that they we're all in this revolutionary struggle together. And of course, when you go around and asking for everyone to pay their part, 
they're going to pay the part. You're not going to have people saying, well, no, actually, we don't think that we should owe that much because it didn't affect us as much. You know, it, it wasn't, it was only through practice they realized that, much like some of the failed republics we've discussed in other papers, mm-hmm. that there was going to be a free rider issue of, you know, some of the states wanting to get the benefit without paying the cost. Those are strong points. And it's also a strong point to say that, you know, the whole is going to care about the component parts more than one component part is going to care about, you know, the other ones. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm almost surprised he didn't go with some sort of bodily metaphor of like, you know, <laughs> the brain cares for the whole body, mm-hmm. you know, and it's going to be as concerned about a problem of the hand as it's as the brain, whereas the foot's not going to care about what the hand is doing and vice versa. Mm-hmm. I'm almost surprised he didn't go that way, but... Uh, I I didn't want to just point out that I'm not. Com- there was some str- some strong logical points in what Hamilton was saying, but I can also see how the anti-federalists thought that it was red meat for them to strike back at. And when oh I was, yes, when I was looking at this paper, I saw that this is one where they felt like Hamilton served them up arguments on a silver platter much more than on the papers. He, Absolutely, so and, 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 and in twenty four he addresses that argument that he constantly hears in response to his rhetoric um and he's got a flowery way of doing it which you well, know, he is yeah and uh and we'll get into that all on the next one anything else you want to get into or are we no i think we've pointed that we're both ready to go into 24 to okay. go into round two and round see two if he can if the ability of the legislature to defund the military is really going to rein them in. Mm, mm. All right. Well, with that said, we'll see everybody next time on uh, Paperless Federalist uh, for uh, where we discuss Federalist Paper number 24. See you next time. See you then. Bye.